Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. We are going to look at, um, and I'm going to try my best to get through this, we're going to try to do verse 13 through 18 of Ephesians 2 tonight. But I want to—I do want to go back real quickly, and I'm going to tag a couple of scriptures. If you remember, going all the way back to the beginning, the first three verses, Paul had us, um, we were dead in our trespasses. We, not only were we dead in them, but we walked according to the course of the world. We were, uh, by nature, uh, children of wrath. And then verse 4 he put this, but God, which is, you know, that little phrase just, you know, it excites you when you see it. Because it, it takes not where we, well, it does imply where we were, but it, it also just sets that marker. God doesn't care where you start from. Your condition, we all, all of mankind starts not just under the barrel, but at the bottom of a ditch, under the barrel. So because, in verse 4, God's mercy, because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive with Christ. And not only did he make us alive, but he raised us up with him and made us to sit with him in heavenly places. And he threw that little parenthetical thought in there, for by grace you've been saved, which Paul goes into in verse um, 8, 9, and 10. We were saved by grace through faith, but we did it so that in the ages, or God did that, so that in the ages to come, he could show his exceeding riches of his grace, which tells me it's going to take all of eternity for God to express his love for us. And we're going to continually grow. We're going to continually learn more and more attributes of God, which when, you, when you, my mind tries to wrap around that, if I have all eternity, how can I, will, will there never be a point where I fully understand God? Well, on one level, I will understand him intimately, immediately, because I won't have my flesh, and it'll be a spirit-to-spirit relationship, but there will be aspects of him that we will learn about forever. And, and uh, probably a, a, it's, it's kind of a silly um, metaphor, comparison, but, you know, Gina and I have been married for 36 years. And even to this day, I will occasionally do something and she'll look at me and say, who are you and what have you done with my husband? Because there are still parts of my personality that she is not, she doesn't glimpse them very often because, well, part of the reason she doesn't glimpse parts of my personality is she suppresses parts of my personality, which is good. I remember when, and I, I, I saw this with my dad after my mom passed away, I also had a, a pastor's wife one time that commented the same situation with her mom after her dad died, that when my mom died, my dad's personality changed over the next two years, or at least I thought it did. 
And I thought, well, I guess this is just him going through the mourning process. And then finally, when this pastor's wife mentioned it to me, I realized there were things that were in my dad that he learned there's a price to pay in, our, in my, his relationship with my mom. If I express that, it's not going to go real well. So he suppressed some things. I'm sure my mom suppressed some things in her personality that irritated my dad because we have an influence on them. And then suddenly it came out when she was no longer there. Dad just started being his normal self. I had never seen that normal self. Well, our flesh is that way as, as Christians because we are in this process. We saw that last week with, with verse 10. Um, in verse 10, we're, we're being delivered. We're going through that process of sanctification, and we're being delivered from the habit of sin. When we got born again, we became his workmanship, which is the first part of verse 10. And we were created for good works, but God's already prepared them beforehand. That is being delivered from the, from the habit and the, um, um, the process of sin that we express. God's presence in our lives will change, or we will change the way we think, the way we view life, and our behaviors will change when you become a Christian. Because I've had people say, and it comes back to this once saved, always saved argument, which I never like, but they will say, well, you know, if you believe once saved, always saved, then you're saying that as long as someone says a sinner's prayer, they're saved, and it doesn't matter how they live. No, I've known a lot of people that have prayed the sinner's prayer and didn't get saved because they were just saying rote words, and a lot of times they were saying those rote words to get somebody off their back. And the proof of the pudding is do do you change and part of that is do you continue in the word and i'm not going to judge anyone's heart because i know in my own life i was eight when i got saved i was in a church that taught me nothing i had no knowledge of the word and as a teenager i strayed from the church and got away from the word and i lived just like every other sinner out there but I was saved in my heart, and I know I was because I was guilty 24 hours a day, seven days a week. God was gnawing at the inside of me, trying to draw me back. It took a decade to, to finally get through to me, and I finally came back to church and then started finally the process of sanctification and started cleaning my life up. But... So I don't judge someone and say, well, if, if, if their lifestyle didn't change, they're, they're probably not saved. I can't say that, but I would be nervous if I, was a per, if I said I was a Christian and I was living like the world. That would make me nervous. Am I really a Christian? Am I not a Christian? And to be honest with you, most people that are living that way, I know in Cape, Cape uh, point of yeah case in point for myself I did have great doubts when I was out living in the world I worried about whether I was saved or not I worried about you know if I die am I really going to go to heaven or am I going to am I and to be honest with you if you really asked me and I got honest I probably would have said oh I'm going to hell <laughs> because I'd heard enough sermons on hell 
I had heard enough sermons on you must be born again, but I also heard some that a lot that uh, you need to stay confessed up and you need to do this and you need to do that. And I probably at that time, if I was really honest, would have said, yeah, I probably would go to hell if I died right now. I'm not sure if I would or not. I, I wouldn't want to tempt the Lord in that. But in verse 11 and 12, which we covered last week, he gets into this whole controversy about the Gentiles, because they weren't circumcised, the Jews looked down on them. And it was a huge, huge problem because the Jews rejected all Gentiles because they didn't have circumcision in their life. But then Paul, um, we went back and because Paul's reading, writing Ephesians, you go back and look at Romans 4. Paul said in Romans 4, he, he's, he's talking about the faith of Abraham. And he said, did, did Abraham get accounted to righteousness because of his faith or because of something he did? And he used circumcision as the, the, the key there. And he said, when Abraham believed and God accounted it to him as righteousness, was he circumcised or uncircumcised? The answer was he was uncircumcised. And then he became circumcised as a sign that he had an inward work, which is the picture that Paul's trying to draw for us. Your lifestyle is important, but your lifestyle should result because of an, a, a circumcision of the heart. We should have been broken away from the world when we got born again and figured out who we were in Christ. I, uh, Matt and Tiffany's pastor, when I, I've heard his testimony, and when I look back, his mom died um, of cancer at around the same age I was when my mom died of cancer. And he was raised Baptist. His dad was a pastor. My dad was a lay minister. Um, and I thought, you know, we have pretty similar backgrounds up to that point. But I, then I heard him say, because I also always wondered, because he, he answered the call to preach as a teenager. I rejected the call to preach as a teenager and went off into the world. And I often thought, what was it about our, we had similar backgrounds, why did I reject that? And he accepted it. Now, he was, he will tell you he was legalistic and immature for a big portion of the early part of his ministry. But I look at that and, and then I heard him also say at one point, and this was the key for me, he said, even though I was raised Baptist, and I have, don't misunderstand me, I have nothing against the Baptist Lord, if it hadn't been for the Baptist, some of the Baptist teaching, and it's particularly for me, my study helps. They're all Baptist study helps. That's, that's my greatest source of, um, of, of background and, and um, help that I have now as a pastor is from, from Baptist sources. But he said, I remember growing up, I constantly heard about who I was in Christ, who I was in Christ, who I was in Christ. I never heard that phrase. 
until I came back to the Lord at 28. And I didn't hear it in the church that I was in then, but people started, this was back in the charismatic renewal, and suddenly it became cool to write books about scripture, and suddenly people, and it wasn't just, you know, there, there were always lots of good commentaries, but they were all academic, they're kind of dry, and suddenly people just started writing books addressed to the common man. And I almost look at it that the, one of the big factors in the charismatic renewal was that people, and, and I almost compare it to when um, the Catholic Church lost the exclusive right to have the Bible just in Latin. If you didn't know Latin, you couldn't read the Bible. So nobody read the Bible other than the priests. And then suddenly they started, even though it was illegal, people started translating the Bible into common languages. And suddenly the people could read their Bibles for themselves. And then with Gutenberg, they could actually print a Bible, and it became cheap to, I mean, I've got probably 30 Bibles at home in my, on my bookshelf of different translations, and with my phone and my computer, I've got access to hundreds. But you can go in all these new translations, all these different translations, and you can actually, even without the commentaries, you can read it and see what it says. And then we went through that again with the charismatic renewal, that suddenly there were books written that laymen could read and understand. And it was, you could just see people got excited about being a Christian again because they finally understood, oh, I'm really supposed to walk in this stuff. Salvation isn't just not a ticket to heaven, and I live like the world until I die. Because that was, that seemed to be the entire attitude of the church I was raised in. You get saved, thank God you're going to heaven, now just go live any, the best way you can, and you know, you're going to sin. You'll probably sin a hundred times a day. Just, you know, do your best, and if you really get having problems, come rededicate your life. Well, that didn't work for me, and I'll be honest with you, I don't think it worked for many people. But here again, that's where Paul leaves us at the end of verse 12, and then we come to verse 13. Now, remember verse 4, he said, But God, who is rich in mercy, to bring us out of that state of being children of wrath. Verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is the only condition, and it is a huge condition. Paul has, has mentioned this phrase a lot about being in Christ. But here, he really does throw it up finally. This is the one condition that you have to have to qualify you for all of this, is you have to be in Christ. He brings us back to verse 11 and 12, hearken back to our days before Christ, B.C. Verse 13 brings us back to the present, but now. But then he also spiritualizes it, said, but now. In Christ Jesus, it's our position with him, seated with him in heavenly places that gives us all of these things. And that happened when Jesus ascended to the Father in the first part of, of the book of Acts. So even before I was born, Jesus saw me sitting with him. 
Now, I, I, my brain can't wrap itself around, my brain has a hard time wrapping itself around the fact that Jesus forgave sins that I hadn't committed yet. He's also forgiven sins that present day, right now. I haven't committed sins that are already under the blood. And it gets into that, you know, the God standing outside of time, which is kind of like trying to do the, the paradox of time travel. You know, you go back in time, you kill your father, but then you're not born, so you can't invent a time machine to go back in time. So your father didn't get killed, so you were born. Then you invented the time machine, and you went back and killed your father. Well, <laughs> you can you think on that long enough, it'll give you a really bad headache. Well, this is some of those things you just have to write it down. It's just God says that it happened. That's how it is. I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to accept it. But he uses this phrase uh, when he talks about our former state. We were once far off. That brings me to, and let's go really quick, Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. This is right after the fall of man. And um, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they realized something was different. Now, I wouldn't argue this, this doctrine, but I, I really think, because the Bible said that Adam and Eve were, were naked and not ashamed. I think part of the reason that was that way, I think they were in the same state that Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had the glory of God on them to such an extent that you knew they had bodies, you knew they were physical beings, but you really couldn't see much of their body because they just were bathed and clothed in glory. The second they sinned, I believe that glory departed. Now, the amazing thing to me is, and, and I almost wish Adam had, Adam had not done it, but I think when, when Eve ate the fruit, the glory would have left her. And Adam chose to go with Eve. Now, I'm sure he loved her, and his commitment to her was stronger than his commitment to God. And he ate the fruit, and suddenly they're both naked. They know they're naked, and they run off and try to, you know, cut leaves off trees to hide their nakedness. But their nakedness is more a sense of this phrase that Paul uses. They were far off. They knew they had lost their fellowship with God. They, I believe, they lost the glory of God that they were clothed in. And in Galatia, or, um, Genesis 3, 9, says, Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And I know I've had a lot of people, usually doubters, that say, Well, if God's om om omniscient, he knows everything, why would he ask Adam where he was? Well, he, he knew where Adam was. He asked the question because he's trying to draw Adam near. And that's, the, that's a very Jewish um, thought about being far off and near. The Jews were near to God. Gentiles were far off because we've already gone through it. They, they didn't have the, the covenants of promise. They, there were a lot of things that they didn't have, and it cut them off from the presence of God. Um, an example of that, if you go over to Isaiah chapter 59, Isaiah, and here he's talking about the nation of Israel, but it's still, we're going to look at the first three verses. 
it is still um, descriptive of how anyone is when they're far off from God. Isaiah 59, the very first verse says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. That is the state that we were on. The blood that's on our hands is due to our sin that separated us from God. And it, 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 it seems like, well, that's, a, that's really kind of a harsh-looking picture. But our sin, if, if nothing else, you know, I remember when um, Mel Gibson made the, the movie The Passion of the Christ, when you see the Roman soldier holding that nail, driving it into Jesus' hands, those are Mel Gibson's hands. It's the only time he appeared in that movie. And he said he did it because he, any time he saw that movie, he wanted to be reminded it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. So there, in, in one sense, we have blood on our hands, Simply because, and Jesus even said it, he said, you know, the law says don't murder. I'm telling you, if you have, you know, ought in your heart against your neighbor, you've murdered him already. It, it's not the matter of doing physical harm to your neighbor and actually killing them. Do you want to kill them? And if you do, then you're already a murderer in your heart. So the way I've said, you know, the, the law tells you you're wrong and leaves you wrong, convinces you you're a sinner. Grace sets even a higher standard than the law, but grace empowers you to fulfill that. It changes your heart condition. Well, we had blood on our hands, but we can only come draw near to God by being in Christ because if you, if you read the rest of verse 13 back in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, but now in Christ... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And the sad part is for the Jews, because Paul loved the Jews. He was a Jew. I mean, you read in Romans, uh, he, he lamented the condition that the Jews were in, in in chapter 10 and 11 of Romans. You can just, he pours his heart out. I want my nation to be, be saved, come into the knowledge of who Jesus is, but I know they're probably not until the end of the church age. There was a, a um, in the rabbinic writers, they, they have a story about a very famous rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer. And it says that he had um, um, a woman who was a Gentile. And she came to him and she confessed that she was a sinner. And she asked to be admitted to the Jewish faith because she wanted to get saved. And she said, Rabbi, bring me near, which comes back to the, the, the language that Paul used. The sad part is, in the rabbinic um, writings, the rabbi refused. He slammed the door in her face because she was a Gentile. She couldn't be brought near. 
which was part of the reason that, that God set the Jews aside temporarily as far as being his instrument in the world and he's using the church because the door is open now for the church and those who have been far from God, God brought them near. The door shut for no one. We get a, and, and the end of verse 13 says that it's all by the blood of Christ. If you go, and I'm going to try to do this real quickly. I may not make it. But in Hebrews chapter 10, Paul goes into this with the law in verse 1. And we're going to read through um, probably verse 20. He said, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. If you have to repeat an action to purify the people over again, then that action didn't complete the work. It's a work in progress. Verse 2 says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered, if they, if they made the person perfect. For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sin. Now that's, that is my big problem with um, the old version or the old reasoning of um, hellfire and brimstone preaching. Because most pastors preach to their congregations who are mostly saved. And Christians don't be, need to be reminded of their sins. They need to be convicted of their righteousness so we can live above our sins and enter into that, that sanctification, which is a deliverance from the habit of sin. Not that we don't, but we need to be reminded that, yeah, when you do, just run to 1 John 1, 9, confess it, get out from under the penalty of it, and get back into fellowship with the Lord, and move on and step on up. Just because you fall in the mud puddle doesn't mean that you have to live with mud all over you. But that's what, that's what the sacrifices did. They brought a consciousness of sins. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. I've used this illustration. I think I used this one last week. If you take a piece of, of new leather and you, you, you spill some ink on it, it's going to stain that leather. Well, if you take the blood of a, any animal and you rub blood all over that, it's just going to darken the stain. It might partially cover that, but if you keep applying the blood and keep applying blood, it's just going to make a darker and a darker stain until you get to the point where the piece of leather is completely black. And you don't see the individual sins. You just see, oh, my Lord. And if you think of that as being your heart, you know, I don't recommend this TV show. It's off now. But there was a, a TV show, um, Lord, now I've lost the, the title, Once Upon a Time. And it was, it was taking the old Grimm's fairy tales and reworking the, the stories. But there was one episode where um, uh, Snow White who was this you know she was a hero so she had a pure heart 
and she did she killed one of the, she killed the evil queen and or the queen's mother and the evil queen pulled her heart out and was going to kill her until she looked down her heart and she saw a black dot and she said oh i'm not killing you i'm going to let this thing grow and eat you alive and she stuck her heart back on her chest well that's kind of what sin does except that your heart gets that stain of sin well we don't just sin once we sin multiple times and when you apply the blood of bulls and goats eventually when you look at your heart you can't tell what's causing the blackness in your heart is it your sins or the blood of those bulls and goats but the great news is and and this is started in in verse 5 through 7 paul quotes uh or not well i believe it is paul in hebrews He quotes Psalm 40, uh, verse 6, 7, and 8. He says, um, in Hebrews, he says, Therefore, when he came into the world, speaking of Jesus, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God previously saying sacrifice and offerings burnt offerings and offerings for sins you did not desire nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law then he said behold i have come to do your will O god he takes away the first that he might establish the second the first part of those verses verse um, six and seven of psalm 40 are talking about the offerings in under the law and then verse, um, I think it was verse 8, gets to, I have come in the volume of the book that is written to do your will. That's Jesus' life fulfilling the law in its entirety, offering himself as that ultimate sacrifice and shedding his blood, and then his blood, his blood is offered, and to use to go back to the illustration from the leather on our heart, when you apply his blood, instead of making the stain darker, it just bleaches it perfectly back to, to its original state. And the great part is with 1 John 1, 9, when we do sin, which we do occasionally, sometimes more than occasionally, when we run to 1 John 1, 9, and we walk in fellowship and walk in the light as he is in the light, his blood is constantly re-cleansing our heart and taking that stain and taking the, 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 the results. Now, it doesn't mean that there's, there's not a, um, the principle of sowing and reaping. You know, I've, I've used the illustration. Um, I used to use it a lot with my students in high school. Um, you have unprotected premarital sex and your girlfriend gets pregnant you can ask forgiveness for the premarital sex god's not gonna just god's not gonna remove that baby and any sin that we do we there we may we may get some consequences from it but ultimately the punishment for it is still on jesus there may be natural things that happen, but 
spiritually, God has already cleansed that for us. But let's read on. Verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. The reason it can't take away the sins, the whole point of the law, was to prove to us we needed a Savior. It's to prove to us that we are sinners. Verse 12, but this man, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifices for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. We're seated, when we look at Ephesians, when he sat down, we sat down with him. But notice verse 13, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. The last of those enemies is death itself. Notice verse 14, though. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's verse 13 in Ephesians 2. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. We don't need to do continual offerings because Jesus paid the price once for all. Verse 19 is the key, though. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. It's when Paul refers there in verse 13 of Ephesians 2, and he says we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's what he's referring to. Jesus went, he paid the price once for all. And we have been brought near. It, when it says near, we have, have boldness to enter the holiest. That's the holy of holies. Now, and I'm running out of time here, so I'm probably not going to get all the way to verse 18. But let me throw this out. And maybe we'll get there. Verse 14 through 18. Let me just read through this real quick. Verse, well, verse 13 of Ephesians 2 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, or the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. That's what he's talking about in, in Hebrews 10. He said, we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil. When Jesus was crucified, the veil of the temple tore from the top to the bottom, meaning God tore it. It wasn't a man. If it had been a man that tore it, it would have torn from the bottom up to the top. But it tore top to bottom, meaning God opened the way. But not only did God open the way into the Holy of Holies, what Paul's given us the, the picture of in verse 14 is a picture of the temple. When you walked up to the temple, especially the, the temple that Jesus went to, Herod's temple, because it was massive. Herod, Herod wanted to be loved by the Jews. 
He wasn't a Jew. Um, he claimed to be Jewish by, I think, one of his parents. He claimed was a Jew, but I'm not so sure that that was true. But none of the Jews of the day claimed or accepted that Herod was a Jew. So Herod tried to buy their love. And he literally poured, in today's value, probably a trillion dollars into the temple. Well, when you came up to that temple, you had steps that led up to the temple. And every set of steps led to a court. The first court was the court of the Gentiles. Anybody could go there. There were no restrictions. Anybody could go into the court of the Gentiles. But if you went up the next flight of stairs, there were walls of separation around the next court. The next court, you had to be a Jew, male or female. Now remember, Jews, one of the, the prayers written, recorded, uh, that Jewish men were supposed to pray every morning back in the first century was, God, thank you that you didn't make me a Gentile or a woman. So <laughs> the Jewish teachers of the law had a very low opinion of women. But even Jewish women could enter into that court. It was called the court of the women. The third court was the court of the priests. And there's, I, I couldn't quite get an authoritative decision in, in the references I looked at, whether that was a court before you entered into the temple proper, what would have been the old tabernacle, or it was the outer part of the, what would have been the tabernacle, and the temple would have just been considered to be the, the holy place and the holy of holies, which was very small. It was only like 30 feet by 15 feet. So it's not that big. But in th that next court, you, could, you had to be a priest. Now the problem was, and this is where some of the people disagree on whether you were actually in the, 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 the temple compound proper, if all the priests showed up at the temple, there wasn't enough room for all the priests. They could not get in there. There just were too many of them at this point in the first century. But there were always certain priests. They, they drew lots to come in, and they worked one day, maybe every few years, and you had to be in the, the hierarchy to actually go in and, and deal with the showbread and the menorah and the, the altar of incense, and then you had to be the creme de la creme to be asked on the Day of Atonement to only the high priest could go in and actually enter the uh, and see the ark and the glory of God. And only then by very, I mean, the, the, the ceremonies they went through to make sure that you were ceremonially clean to the point where they would, they would put a bell on the ends of their prayer shawls and they would tie a rope around their ankle so that if they, they missed something, they got in there and God's glory broke out and killed them, they could drag the body out you know, least you, you know, the high priest fall over dead and somebody goes in to get the body and they'd fall over dead and before you know it, you got a pile of corpses. Well, God has said, Paul says here in verse 4, all of those walls got torn down in Christ. Now God, because they had, they had an actual inscription and they found one, modern archaeologists 
uncovered this, this tablet that was an inscription between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. And this is what it read. Let no one of any other nation come within the fence and barrier around the holy place. Now notice they're talking about the holy place as being the, where the women and the priests, any Jew can go. But even that's considered holy for a Gentile. He said, um, whosoever will be taken doing so will himself be responsible for the fact that his death will ensue. In other words, you walk beyond this point, deadly forces authorized and will be used. I have a, have a nephew that uh, he's never been able to admit it openly, but he couldn't. He worked for... Um, either the CIA or the NSA, and I know the CIA is not that strict about letting people know that you work for them. So we always, just by process of elimination, said he must have worked for the NSA. But he talked about he was ex-military, and when he, he worked for them, he had to go to Washington to do something, and you drive down this normal highway, and there's woods on both sides of the road. And there is one little nondescript road you turn off in it and you go a mile and it's just forced on either side. And it's like a two lane, it's, it's like a nice driveway, but not a highway. And he said, and then you start seeing signs, deadly force authorized from this point on. And then you come to the guard shacks and the gate. And he said, and it's, you know, high fences, concertina wire, in front of the fences, on top of the fences, and then at the, at the other side of the fence. And there's, there are guys there with, with M4s, and, you know, and they come out, and they got sidearms. They got, they got, and he said, I was authorized to be there. I had my orders. I had my identification papers. They said, you come, you come in. We need to talk to you, and we're putting you to work. And, or at least for that he didn't work there every day because he lived in Texas at the time. But he had to come in to do something at that facility. And he said, the second I pulled up to that thing, he said, I broke out in a sweat. He said, I'm sweating, my heart's palpitating. <laughs> he said, you know, and he was in, he's still in good shape. He runs all the time. And he said, my heart was beating about 120, 125 beats a minute. And he said, I'm thinking, I hope these guys don't think I'm a terrorist because I'm so nervous. He said, but it's the first time I've been in here. And these guys have weapons pointed at me. And I know they're fully loaded. You know, they have their fingers straight out. You know, they don't have it inside the trigger guard. But he said, it only takes a heartbeat to pull that thing in the trigger guard. And I get it that for, for a Gentile, that's kind of how you felt coming up to this i go beyond here i've just forfeited my life these people will kill me and i don't the roman soldiers may try to rescue me but the mob will probably beat me to death before i ever get out of here in fact and we'll we'll close with this one but in acts 21 if you go back to to the book of acts paul in in acts 20 he was um well, the beginning of, of Acts 21, because we're going to start in verse 28. But in the beginning of Acts, he's talking about everywhere I go, people are telling me, Paul, don't go back to, um, don't go back to Jerusalem. Because Paul's taking, he's taking up a collection for, 
the Jews in Jerusalem, for the Jerusalem church, because they are, for some reason, they're dead poor. Um, which, in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, I think they sat around thinking Jesus was coming back, and they quit working, and they just cashed in all of their bonds and all their properties, and they had lived communally for a while, but you can only do that so long, and you run out of money. I don't care how, how rich the people are. Eventually, you know, well, maybe if the king would have gotten into it, it might have lasted. But eventually, you run out of money. And by the time Paul comes back to bring them this offering, they're, they're in desperate straits. But the Holy Spirit keeps telling him, you go back, but it's going to be rough when you get back. Well, it turned out the event, and let's start in, um, in verse 26 of Acts 21. It says, Then Paul took them in, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, and crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. They saw Paul around Jerusalem with Trophimus, knew that Trophimus was a Gentile, he's a Christian, and they just stirred up people and said, he must have brought him in here, and they got a riot on their hands. To the point where the Paul finally he 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 decided, hey, I'm playing the the religion card. He cried out and said, "Look, this is a bunch of Sadducees over here, and they're trying to stone me because I'm a Pharisee and I believe in the resurrection." Well, suddenly all the Pharisees wanted to come to his aid, and then at the very end, the Roman um, um, governor came and said. You know, arrest that man. He's causing a riot. And he said, no, you're not going to arrest me. I'm a Roman citizen. I may be a Jew, but I'm still a Roman. And the governor realized, yeah, I'm, you can't arrest a Roman without charges. So they ended up, ended up he was in prison and went to see the, the king, Felix. And Felix, um, I think Felix may have been ready to release him, but Paul appealed to Rome. So... They had to send him to Rome then because once you appealed to Caesar, there was, you know, nobody was going to overrule that. Every Roman had a, had a right to appeal to Caesar, and nobody wanted to get between any Roman citizen and Caesar because that would get your head cut off. So it, it's just the thought that they had brought a, that he'd brought a Gentile into this temple caused a riot, and it was the pretext that ended up getting Paul arrested and eventually martyred. Um, now, there's some controversy of whether Paul was released from that captivity and went out 
and did some things and then got arrested in the next big persecution. And I, to be honest with you, I haven't studied that out enough to know um, exactly how it happened. But, and this is my final point, that was the Jews looking on the Greeks. The Greeks were almost as bad, though. Greeks separated the world, the Greek world, they separated the world to those who could speak Greece, Greek and those who couldn't. And if you couldn't speak Greek, you were a barbarian. Paul said it in, in Galatians 3.28 and Colossians 3.11. Between those two, Paul says, look, now in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither barbarian or Scythian. There's neither male nor female. There's neither um, circumcised or uncircumcised. And there's neither slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. Well, yes, but the world is all about separating. I look at our modern world, um, and I'm not to get political, but we've got an entire wing of one party, maybe the entire party. Their entire goal in life is to separate people according to their own little groups. And they identify people by color, by um, sexual orientation, by income, by social status, and their whole purpose is to divide us all up so that we can't stand together. And it's, it's part of the reason that our country's in trouble right now because we've, our politicians for decades, and, and to some degree both parties, I think it falls a little heavier on the left than it does on the right, but both parties have preached division and division and division to the point where we demonize our political opponents. And so our country is very divided now. The ancient world was no different. And it's, it really does come down, when, when you bring it down to the base level, it's a, it's a manifestation of the nature of sin because we divide it. The shame of it is, is that Christians fall into the same trap. We talked earlier, when I was a little boy, I lived in a southern city. We had the black school, the white school. I went to grade school in a segregated um, grade school. We had black churches, white churches. To this day, now I have no doubt, I, there are several churches in this town that are predominantly black. If I walked into them, I would be welcomed. We have blacks that are in our church. They're welcome. But predominantly, we still separate. Now, with the church, it's not so much um, racial divisions, although there is still some of that. It's mostly doctrinal divisions. And these people, because you don't have the same doctrine I do, we've even got people, they're going to hell. They're heretics. And it's you. you I know Paul... It got to be sitting in heaven thinking, have you guys never read what I wrote? We're all one. If you, are, if you call on the name of Christ, you're a brother and sister. And I know you all have, have experienced this. I have. I've been, I can't count the times where I've been out, especially if you're in a, um, like an airport and you got a, you know, a couple of hours between flights and, you know, you try usually to catch your meals in there because eating in the air 
when you're 30,000 feet high, nothing tastes good, you know. And it's not, it's not the airline food. It's, it really is a matter of physics. The, the molecules in your food can't, they can't do what they normally would do at normal air pressure. But if not, you're just sitting around and, you know, sometimes you just get so bored you strike up a conversation with a stranger and you feel like, well, there's a kinship here. There's something we're connecting. And then you find out, oh, they're a Christian. I just had that experience yesterday. Uh, we have new neighbors across the street. And um, I went over, finally, they've been there a month, maybe six weeks. And I've, I've seen him, we've waved, but I've never gone and introduced myself. Well, I got home, it's like, I'm going to go over and introduce myself. I did. Five minutes into the conversation, we both find out, uh, well, I somehow it came up that I was a pastor. And as soon as I said that, oh, and suddenly we had all these things in common because he's a Christian. And it was like, wow, this is just, this is good. It's nice. And the people that were lived there before were Christians, and, and we always got along. And it's, there's just that, that there's a unity. Now, I may disagree politically. I may even disagree doctrinally. But if it's not a heaven and hell issue, and there's only a couple of those, I don't care. I'm not going to get breaking a sweat over it. For one thing, I don't think God's pleased if we start dividing ourselves up because somebody doesn't. They, they, they look at the Bible and they honestly look at the same scripture and see it differently than I see it. My flesh wants to say, well, they're stupid. <laughs> no, they're different. <laughs> they have a different background and they, they interpret it a different way. When we get to heaven, you know, I had a pastor once, he said, um, when, when people would disagree with him, he says, well, you know, the rapture, will the rapture will happen eventually, and when we go up, you can just look over at me and say, yeah, you were right, Pastor Bob. Well, you know, I'm not so arrogant to think that everybody's going to, that disagrees with me is going to look over and say, yeah, you were right, Pastor John. No, it, 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 when we when we get to heaven, first of all, when we get to heaven, I don't think any of these disagreements down here will. We won't even think about them. We won't care. But if we did think about them, it's going to be. It just doesn't matter anymore. Who cares? Well, we're already seated with him in heavenly places. We need to get that mindset, and just not care about the the, the little differences about how we worship. Whether we have, you know, traditional hymns whether we don't have any music at all or we have a rockin', you know, um, modern rock concert type worship. Whatever floats your boat, I don't care. It's not, it's, it's, are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? If you are, you're my brother, you're my sister. If you're not, let me invite you in. I don't want to disagree with you for fear of maybe you need to get saved. And if I act like, a, a, you know, a heathen get all nervous and you know in my flesh I just ran you off thank you so much for joining us if this message has blessed you today we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com <laughs>